0: untriggered. The goal is to help us with these triggers. But sometimes the problem is we have the wrong filter. I was in Brazil. It was my first international trip. I was 19 years old and having a great time uh, serving in a place called Palin near uh, the Amazon. And one of the games I started playing was with some of the locals. They would play this game called nome, which means what is his name or what is her name? And I would guess. We didn't have a lot of communication otherwise. But they would point at somebody, and I'd already met them, and so I'd guess. They'd say, suo nome? And I'd say, Anna Christina. And they'd say, Si. And then they'd point at the next person in the row, and they would say, suo nome? And I would say, mm, Anna Paula. And they'd say, Si. I was two for two. I was getting them all right. And then they pointed at the next woman, and they said, suo nome? And I said, Della. And they said, Si, and pointed at her again. And said, qual is nome? I said, "Della," And they said, si. Pointed at her again. Qual is your nome? By this point, I'm getting frustrated. "Della," They said, si. And they started getting frustrated too. Pointed at her again. Qual is your nome? I said, Dela. They said, si. Qual is nome? And I said, Dela. And I was just going on and on and on. We are getting frustrated. So finally, someone who understood Portuguese and English comes up and starts laughing at us. He says, Eric. They're asking, what is her name? And you're answering answering them with, her? <laughs> Della means her. What is her name? Her. Yes. What is her name? Her. Yes. It <laughs> could have gone on forever. See, at some point I got the wrong filter. Somebody had told me the word Della and I connected in my brain with, oh, that's her name. Instead of that's like what you call every woman in Brazil, Della, her. What is the filter that you see things through? This is an innocuous example. This was just a silly moment in international travel, but think about how difficult it is to communicate with people when there's more than just language barriers. We see the world differently. We come from different backgrounds. Some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts, some of us are intuitive, some of us are sensing. There's so many different things that make us different. So it's easy to fall into wrong assumptions, or even to see things through the wrong filter. But this innocuous example is actually a good example of how evil actually works. When we have the wrong filter, we can become easily wounded. And these unhealed wounds become the perfect soil for a lie to be planted. And to grow into a full flown version of a way that we live our life all based on Now, if you missed the last two weeks of our series, I want to encourage you to go back and listen. You can listen on our Gateway Austin app, or I put the notes up at ericbryant.org. But week one, we talked about what a trigger is. Trigger is when you are met with something and there's an overreaction. And so it's this moment when really an unhealed wound is being poked or a memory is causing you to overreact emotionally. Now, some of us overreact with anger. Others of us might become dismayed, or afraid, or insecure, or become defensive. In some way, we overreact beyond what the present situation deserves. And so what we talked about is how we need to spot the symptoms early. See, what's happening is something physiological is happening in your brain. When something is triggered, it immediately makes your brain move into fight or flight. You are no longer rational. You're just trying to protect yourself, even though whatever is happening had nothing to do with what it triggered from the past. It may have something that reminds you of it, but you can start feeling your heart rate goes up, your muscles start to tense, your face muscles even tense up. You're you're starting to physiologically feel the difference. So if you can't avoid the trigger, then you next need to stop. You need to de-escalate the situation. Now, we talked about how the hormones firing in your brain, it takes about 20 minutes for that to dissipate. So the idea is if you're triggered, just tell the person you're talking to, hey, just give me a break. I just need 20 minutes, gather myself. We talked about this a couple weeks ago and one of us one of you came to me and said, You know, I tried that and it didn't, didn't work. I think I need 20 hours. <laughs> That's, uh, maybe the break she needed. But here's what you do in that middle of that 20 minute break, give or, excuse me, give or take, you ask the question, What's going on inside of me? What, what's going on between the two of us? You actually start to observe just the facts. This re-engages the higher functioning part of your brain, the neocortex, so you're no longer operating in fight or flight. Just use that time to pray, to quote scripture, to reevaluate. Wait a minute, why am I so bothered by what just happened? And then today we're going to spend more time on this idea of searching for the lies, the agreements, and even God's third story perspective, so that we can let God heal the wound. Because triggers are sure signs there's something unhealed that God wants to heal in you. We need to let God heal the wound. Jesus warned us, he said, that there's a thief, there's darkness, there's evil that lurks and it's trying to harm us, to steal, kill, and destroy us. But that he, Jesus, came to bring us life, abundant life, overflowing life. And here's how evil works. Evil propagates through unhealed wounds, lies, or agreements and triggered reactions. Evil hurts us and then lies to us about God's intentions or it tricks us into taking our own path to protect ourselves or to meet our core needs in ways other than how God designed us. And so what happens is evil gets a hold of us and then we spread that evil, hurt people hurting people. Most of us don't intentionally choose to spread evil, but when we believe lies because of unhealed wounds, it makes us vulnerable to them. But here's the beautiful part of this story. God is overcoming evil in us and through us. Two years ago, I was with a team in Israel in the West Bank serving from Gateway, And we had a chance to go to the the place where they believe the synagogue was where Jesus read these words. It, It was the proclamation of his ministry was now beginning. And he quoted from Isaiah chapter 61. Listen to how he describes his ministry that began that day and continues even now. He read from Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, it's interesting, because he ends the sentence halfway. He doesn't finish the part where it talks about the day of the vengeance of God. And it's it's for multiple reasons, but one that's important. We live in the day of the Lord's favor. But one day, after all who will say yes to following Jesus have said yes, there will be justice that comes. And some of us struggle to believe in God because of this idea of God's justice or wrath or or judgment. These are words, when we read them in the scripture, it throws us off. But then there's others of us that struggle to believe in God because he doesn't seem to bring justice quick enough. This last week, I got an email from someone who was a part of our church before moving out of the state. She emailed me saying, could you point me to some verses on God hurting in the midst of our pain, how God hates sin and is just, it's just so hard for me to believe sometimes with all that happens in our world. I live in a box, you know, people are suffering far more. So I sent her uh, several verses that I mentioned during our series we did last year called Get a New God in an article I wrote called God's Love and Justice. But we have to understand that that the rest of this passage, if, if you want to just for a moment consider, can I trust a God who is loving and will bring justice? You have to understand why he brings justice. The rest of that verse tells us the day of justice of God comes to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So what you need to know about the character of God is that if you're comforting, God sees you. If you need comforting, God sees you. If you're grieving, God grieves with you. If you're mourning, God mourns with you. And if you're in despair, God is with you. See, God is for you, not against you. And this is the time of God's favor, that all of us have the opportunity, the freedom to choose if we would want to be his adopted son and daughter. See, God came to deliver every willing person from this cycle of evil that we get swept into, hurt people, hurting people. And so Jesus proclaims his ministry, is he's going to bind up the brokenhearted He's going to set the captives free. He promises us that we can find freedom. We find that freedom when we are no longer held hostage by the past. Falling into the same patterns of evil and destruction that we seem to find ourselves. In the season of the Lord's favor, Jesus promises to set us free. And how does he do that? Well, we have to allow God back into that painful emotional memory so that he can heal it. Now, if you've had severe trauma, I want to make sure you understand the importance of having a counselor, of having community in the midst of allowing God to bring healing, to work this through with someone who's an expert. But it's incredibly important that you understand that you can find healing. You don't have to remain stuck. And one of the next steps for many of us in this room, I would highly encourage you to take up Jamie on this offer, to to come to one of these informational sessions about the 12 steps. You don't want to miss this. We only do this about once a year, and they always fill up. But it is transformational. This step study was something that God really used in my life. Now, have you ever heard somebody say that they needed to work through the steps And you didn't necessarily know what that means. I've come to understand that the steps, working the steps, is really just exercising spiritual disciplines that you see in the scriptures. But I thought I'd kind of walk you through to help summarize some of this. Really, steps one through three are about making peace with God. We admit that we are powerless and we need God. So we surrender whatever we're facing, whatever we're triggered by, we surrender that to him. Now, steps four through seven is about making peace with ourselves. This is when you've heard people talk about making this moral inventory. It's a searching and fearless moral inventory. And then we admit to God and to ourselves and to another person the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, I have to tell you, this is where a lot of us who start working <coughs> the steps and struggle and get tripped up. Because It's daunting. In fact, I went through the 12 steps twice before it really seemed to help me. And so it was easy to think, well, I tried it, it didn't work. But in reality, it was I hadn't actually really worked the steps. My inventory was not fearless. It was fearful, right? <laughs> I didn't write things down. And so this time, the third time through, the third time through doing this step study, I I, I decided I'm just going to do it. I'm going to write everything down. Now, I knew that the person I was meeting with My sponsor would keep things confidential. I wasn't worried about that. What I was worried about is that they would look at me differently. That they would see me differently than they did now. That it would affect even my friendship with my sponsor. I have to tell you, I went into that with, with a bit of fear and a little bit of shame, and at the end, I'm telling you, I felt lighter. Like I literally wanted to go weigh myself. I felt like I was lighter. It was such a remarkable experience. And as someone who's actually been on the other side, as a sponsor helping someone else, I can tell you, I've seen people's countenance change. There's more light and life in their eyes. They look differently after this time of being honest, this time of confession. So step four through seven are about making peace with ourselves. And after we share this moral inventory, then we humbly ask God to remove these defects of character and to remove our shortcomings, And then steps eight and nine, which is where I want to spend more of our time today, is is about making peace with others. This is where you've heard this idea of making amends. Just to finish it out, steps 10 through 12 is about living with peace on an ongoing basis, which we'll talk about more next week. But, But this idea of having peace with others, see, I think for some of us, we don't realize that we are triggered because we have a lot of unforgiveness, a lot of bitterness, a lot of pain from the past. Now, when we first moved here, my, my wife and I, if you don't know our story, we grew up in Texas, and then we moved to Seattle and lived there for four years. Then we were in Los Angeles for 14 or 13 years. So we spent 17 years on the West Coast, and it was a, a big deal for us to move back to Texas. Now, we moved to Austin. It's not like the rest of Texas, so, but it was still a big thing for us. Now, everyone in our extended family lives in Texas, except for these two cousins of mine who live out in California, you know, the crazy cousins, which I realize now I must have been one of those crazy cousins because I was there for so long. But I have to tell you, when we moved here, as clear as it was, as excited as it was, it was really hard. When we got here, uh, we drove here, we we were wearing flip-flops and shorts. It was December 31st, and it started to snow in Dallas. And I remember my son like, oh, this is great, snow, we're going to... This is going to be, you know, I'm like, son, this doesn't really happen in Austin. It doesn't snow in Austin. Six weeks later, after what was the coldest month in the history of Austin, with more days under 10, they got a snow day. And I thought, what have we done? This is this is not what I expected. And then that summer, 2011, was the hottest summer on record. We had more days over 100. I don't know if you, some of you were here and remember that. I, I barely survived that year. And not only that things weren't necessarily going well at home or or even in ministry my family even though they all wanted to move here immediately wanted to move back (laughs) and then even here things were just not clicking it just felt like when we got here there was just a lot of disunity and, and frustration in fact i found myself frustrated frustrated with everyone and everything what i didn't realize is that that I was actually experiencing the result of burnout. And so I ended up meeting with a counselor. I guess I was just, again, frustrated. Some of you know this counselor. His name is Michael Warden, And I used to call him the, he's like my Yoda, but he doesn't like that. He prefers Qui-Gon (laughs) Jinn. And so I would have these conversations with Michael, and he would say, well, what do you want? What are you hoping for? And I would say, I need momentum in our ministry. And then he would start talking about me my core values and my shadow statement and my mission statement and I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm having problems with all of these people. <laughs> we don't need to talk about me. I need your help with all of these people. Yeah. And so what I started to realize is that when the problem is everyone else, the problem is actually you. <laughs> and so I remember back to one of my best friends growing up, he would say, you know, everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> you can switch cities, you can switch jobs, you can even switch relationships, but the problem is actually, you are everywhere you go. And so in that process, I began to realize I was blaming others for my circumstances. I'm not taking personal responsibility And even started realizing, you know, at the time I was in my 30s and and thinking, you know, as I would explain away some of my bad habits, losing my temper or or being easily frustrated and blaming on how I was raised, there was a moment where I started to realize I've lived away from my parents longer than I lived with them. How long am I going to keep blaming them for how I lose it? Now, certainly I realize in this room, some of us have gone through some really traumatic things from our parents. And certainly there are genetic predispositions, there are generational struggles that are passed on. But many of us have had great parents, and we use them as an excuse for our bad behavior. It's part of the agreements we made. I remember saying to my family, hey, I'm sorry I lose my temper, but that's how Brian's are. I was excusing my bad behavior because of all of my ancestors. <laughs> but is that how Bryants have to be? You know, in these agreements, these, there's sometimes there's these moments in our life where we don't even realize we believed a lie and we've held on to that lie. Part of the process of healing for me was when Neil Anderson came to town. He's written several books, The Bondage Breaker, Victory Over the Darkness, and At this point, when he came to visit us, he was an older man, and he's basically retired, but semi-retired, because he still came to see us. And it was interesting. He came to see us. I think we were the only other speaking gig that he did that entire uh, season. And he said he came because there, there wasn't another church that he'd worked with quite like us. You see, normally he's invited to come help churches who aren't reaching anyone and hadn't for years. But at the time... He was coming to see us, and we were really good at reaching people, but there was still just this disunity and just this dysfunction. And so he came, and he listened, and he shared some amazing things, some of which I'll share with you in a moment. But one time in particular, it really struck me, because what he started to realize is a lot of us as pastors were not going to the service. And, you know, we were busy. We were doing tasks. We were trying to take care of this or that. And I remember this sweet, gentle elderly man looking at us and pointing a finger saying shame on you if you're a pastor of this church and you're not in a service then shame on you and I remember thinking yeah you give it to him." well said Neil Anderson that's what I've been thinking this entire time and then later as I was reflecting on kind of my next steps I was reminded gently by the Lord how I'm not usually in the room during the music as I'm working on the message. I'm not in the service. And I suddenly realized that that finger he so lovingly pointed at us was pointing right at me. Now, that next Sunday, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to be in the room. Now, I have to tell you that, that at the time, singing was not like a, a love language that I expressed to God. I, I, I like that other people liked it, but at the time, it didn't, didn't really resonate with me. And, and so, I have to tell you, I was completely flabbergasted, surprised when I stood in the room that day. And I felt God's presence in the midst of the music. And I saw you singing, some of you with with such joy, with such desperation. I, I was met by God in a place that I'd been avoiding for so long. See, I had an agreement. That's not how I connect with God. And so I hadn't been but it was a lie. See, one of the processes he walked us through was, similar to step nine, he was walking us through, write down all the people that have hurt you. And then, well, that was fun, that was that list, right? And then he said, you know, write down people that you've hurt. Well, that wasn't as fun, but I, okay, you know, I'll do it. And along the way, as I started filling out this list, He encouraged us to go and spend some time with God and just pray for each of these people and these moments, these moments that were triggering us. And with each one, I just asked, God, is there something I need to do to make this right? And sometimes I would have this sense of, yes, reach out. And so I would and set up a time. And it took several months to have these conversations. Others, it it felt like just a phone call or an email would do. For others, it was like, nope, you've done all that you can. You can't make someone forgive you. That process, I can tell you, was incredibly healing. See, the enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy your joy and your peace and the love that you share for other people. He's trying to divide us. Listen to what the scriptures tell us in John 8. The evil one has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What we need to do is search for these lies, these agreements, and God's perspective, which is different than my perspective versus her perspective. It, it's the full story. So here's what to do. Walk you through some practical things. First, start writing down some of your agreements. What are some of the things that you believe to be true? I shared a couple of, with you already. All Bryants do this. This is what it means to be a Bryant. Let me give you another one. This is just who I am. If you've ever said that, you're, you're, you're giving into a lie that means that you're stuck. You will never be better than you are right now. And actually, if you're not ever getting better, there's only other, one other trajectory, and that's worse. But if you believe, that's just who I am, then you're not believing in a God who offers healing and transformation and change. And so if you have some of these agreements... And you're not sure, is this a good one, or is this not so good? Just ask somebody who's been walking with God a little bit longer. Maybe they're in your serving team, in your network, maybe in your life group, in one of your recovery groups. Ask somebody, you know what, what do you think about this? This is kind of one of my beliefs that I live by. So I took an inventory, and I started writing down some of my agreements, some of the things that I believe, and, and it's embarrassing to admit, but these are some of the things that were going through my head in those days. No one will help you. You're all on your own. Or your value comes from your hard work. Or you made a huge mistake you should have never moved. Or this one, which I, 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 I had a hard time believing this wasn't true. And it starts off positive, but you can hear the lie at the very end. When it comes to worrying about the future, the way I kind of protected myself, as I would always say, nothing has ever happened as bad as I feared. But nothing has ever happened as good as I've hoped. That was a lie. You see, the way that we combat these lies, these agreements that we made is we actually not only go to people that walked with God a little bit longer, but look to the scriptures for what is really true. See, I was believing that no one will help me, that I'm all alone and I was surrounded by people eager to help. I had this lie in my head that my value comes from my hard work, but there are People who love me, God loves me, my family and friends, they love me. And many of them don't even know what I do when I'm at work. Or this idea that you made a huge mistake. The trials we were facing were just so difficult. But it's a lie. See, trials are allowed by God to allow us to grow closer to him that there's things that he can teach us in the midst of these trials that strengthen us for the fight against evil. Trials don't equate with bad decisions. Sometimes God allows us to face these trials, to strengthen us, to be closer to us if we let him. And this lie that nothing as good as I've ever hoped has ever happened goes completely against the scriptures. In Ephesians 3.20, when The Bible tells us that God can do even greater than we ever ask or imagine. That's the God that I believe in. Not the little g-God that I put in a box, a box that I was living in. The scriptures and other followers of Jesus can help shine a light on what's true. A verse I memorized as a young follower of Jesus years ago is one I keep going back to. Memorizing scripture, meditating, or reflecting on scripture can be incredibly helpful to combat these lies, these agreements. This one says this from Isaiah 41. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's a promise from God that we can hold on to, to memorize and to to quote in your mind or out loud any time you feel rejected, dismayed, afraid. Or if you're all alone. What are some of the things that you hear in your head? Those lies intended to distract you derail you keep you going in the wrong direction write some of those down and then write down god's truth it's the second write down the truth john 8 says it this way to the jews who had believed him jesus said if you hold to my teaching you really are my disciples then you will know the truth and guess what the truth will set you free God offers us freedom, and if you are his disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, then hold on to his teaching. Spend time in the scriptures. Spend time with people who have faith and can help you grow. Here's what's beautiful. Because of who Jesus is, listen to this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. His own did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed, trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, Jesus comes to give us light and life. What's remarkable is, hundreds of years before Jesus, God foretold the time and place of, and how and why he would come to rescue us. Isaiah foretold Jesus' crucifixion in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. What is God going to do about the evil all around us? Well, he came and took that evil upon himself. And his name is Jesus. He willingly gave his life, sinless, teaching with authority, able to do the miraculous, and willingly dying on the cross for you and me. In order for us to find freedom, we need to ask him to forgive us, to make us new to trust that what Jesus did on the cross was for you and ask him to make you new, to bring you healing. God grieves with the evils done to us, but also the evil that we've done. But The beautiful things God offers us, forgiveness, a forgiveness that bubbles over, that we might forgive ourselves, and then we learn to forgive the others that have hurt us. Today we celebrate baptism. It's a beautiful symbol of dying to your old life and being raised to walk a new life. symbolic of being cleansed of your sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we just celebrated baptism earlier. Some of you might remember the story I shared of Brant and Lindsay at Easter. And Lindsay was the one who said right before Easter, if this is true, all of this about Jesus, if this is true, this is the most important thing She's discovered that is the most important thing. She got baptized just a little bit ago. Isn't that beautiful? But there are others of you in this room that maybe today is the day you need to acknowledge. You have already said yes to Jesus. Or maybe now is when you're saying yes to Jesus. But getting baptized is declaring to the world what's already happened in your heart. So we didn't drain the pool. It's still there, ready, in case any of you would like to take the pool. And we have towels that you can take home as a complimentary gift if you get baptized in the clothes that you came in on. I've had people ask me in the past, well, you know, I was already baptized as a kid. You know, my parents, it was really important to them, and so I did that for them. Or it happened as I was an infant. I don't remember it. Well, in many ways, being baptized now as a follower of Jesus, is a fulfillment of their hope for you. It's not negating what they did, it's actually acknowledging I am a follower of Jesus just as you hoped one day I would be. And so the band is gonna play a song, and during that song, I want you to consider what does God want to heal from you? What are some of the agreements that you need to hand to him? What are some of the truths you need to hold on to? And perhaps if you're here, maybe your next step is to be baptized. During the song, just make your way out. To the lobby. The people around you will make a way for you to do that. But during the song, don't miss the opportunity to hear and reflect on what God has for you.